This is Sophie Wilson. You are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Hi, this is Linus Wilson. Uh, welcome to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Uh, it's been a long time since we had a podcast. Uh, I think I've got a plan to, to make them more regular uh, in 2022. This is the end of 2021 when I'm recording this. Today I'm going to give you the uh, rest of my audiobook, uh, How to Sail Around the World part-time so if you listen to the the first episode our first episode we had the first chapter of how to sail around the world part-time uh and then we recently had an episode where we gave you chapters three and four i'm going to give you chapters uh two and then i think it's uh five through ten so the rest of the audiobook so enjoy good luck with your sailing plans we plan to have some more content. Uh, I might do a serial of uh, Slow Boat to Cuba, my uh, ebook, which you can get on Amazon. You can also buy the, I think you can buy Slow Boat to Cuba on, on Gumroad. I produced a version of it on Gumroad, but I may just give it away. So stay tuned. And I think we're going to have more content. I also want to, I also want to bring you uh, my audiobook of COVID Road Trip and RV adventure about the 2020 sailing season that was lost and we bought a, a RV and toured around the American West and hopefully that'll be an episode coming up soon too but you can if you want to read about that uh, it's going for 299 uh, ebook version on Amazon all my books are on Amazon I think maybe I have one book that I edited that's on Lulu. You'll just have to search for that one. But uh, we've got a few audiobooks uh, on Audible, uh, Sailing the Ogre. Uh, we've got uh, my book, uh, really well done, uh, by Brian Hendiggs. I hope I got his name right. He just is an excellent actor. He just did a tremendous voice acting version of the complete audiobook of Slow Boat. To the Bahamas, so we won't be able to put that on the the podcast because it's up on Audible. But uh, it, that's that's a tremendously done job. He's just a great actor, great voice actor. We're so lucky to get him. But today you're going to have me as the voice actor uh, for chapters two and then five through ten. So the the parts of the audiobook that have not appeared uh, on this podcast already of how to sail around the world part-time. Of course, we've lived in a different world since I recorded this. I had no idea that that we would have the travel restrictions that we have had, uh, the worst travel restrictions that we've had since World War II, essentially, basically in the modern airline era. We've never had travel restrictions of anything close to what we've had over the last two years. I I believe that they're going to lift to a large extent in 2022, but it still makes it very hard to travel internationally. And uh, I I only can hope that it gets better. But here you go. Here is the, the How to Sail Around the World part-time audiobook, chapters 2, 5, through 10. Chapter 2, Summiting Everest versus Circumnavigation In 2013, 658 people summited Mount Everest. About half these were local high-altitude porters, commonly known as Sherpa. Most of the rest were not professional mountaineers. 
Instead, they were part-time enthusiasts who were guided to the top of the world for a price tag of more than $50,000. This outdoor adventure trophy included bad food, frequent dehydration, frequent headaches, starvation-like weight loss, altitude sickness, over a month in cold, uncomfortable tents, and a 1 in 10 chance of death. Since expeditions began on the world's highest peak in the 1920s through 2013, for every 10 people that have summited Mount Everest, roughly one has died trying. Specifically, 1.1% of the climbers leaving Everest Base Camp between 1953 and 2012 have died on the attempt to climb and descend this peak. The number may understate the risk because fatalities spiked on Everest in 2014 and 2015. In 2014, an enormous block of ice dislodged and killed 16 climbers. At least 19 climbers died in the aftermath of the Nepali earthquake of 2015. Many of those that don't die are maimed for life. Frostbite claimed fingers and toes as low atmospheric oxygen, cold temperatures, and fickle weather combined with lethal force. To get to the top, most climbers walk next to the frozen mummies of climbers who sacrificed their lives in a vain attempt to summit and return from the deadly Himalayan peak. Nevertheless, the view from the top is often worse than what the typical commercial airplane flyer can see from the window seat of a safe $400 flight from Indianapolis to Baltimore. There is another outdoor adventure prize at the feet of the amateur, which involves swaying palms, days on the beach, warm water, boundless sunsets, and nights full of more stars than most readers have ever seen. This adventure involves no exhausting hikes with heavy packs, no pitching of tents, plenty of food and drink, and running hot and cold water, this rarer prize is the circumnavigation of the globe in a small sailboat. I arbitrarily define small as under 70 feet long. We will refer to sailors in small boats as cruisers. By my estimates, which I will explain subsequently, the death rate for circumnavigating the globe in a cruising sailboat is closer to 0.3%. This is less than the 1.1% for those going higher than Everest Base Camp. Moreover, fewer climbers ascend Everest on their first attempt, which may double or triple the risks. Finally, the minuscule daily circumnavigation risks are spread out over six years, not the less than six weeks it takes to summit Everest. Three-time circumnavigator Jimmy Cornell the founder of the most popular around-the-world rally for sailboats, the World Ark, estimates that, based on yachts checking in at key ports around the globe, about 150 to 200 sailboats complete a circumnavigation each year. Based on the Latitude 38 West Coast circumnavigators list that I analyzed, the average boat circumnavigating for the first time has 1.9 people going around the whole way. That translates into about 280 to 380 people circumnavigating each year. That is about half as many people as climbed Mount Everest in 2013. The number of small boat circumnavigators each year is about at parity with the non-Sherpa climbers of Everest in 2013. More potential circumnavigators die of illness unrelated to their sailing 
than drowning. Indeed, the death statistics of potential circumnavigators lost at sea in yachts is so small that there seem to be no reliable statistics on the risks of a 26,000 nautical mile journey in a small sailboat. A nautical mile is approximately 1.15 statute miles. One nautical mile is one minute of latitude. 60 minutes of latitude make up each degree of latitude. Surely crossing oceans in a small sailboat is dangerous, but it may be less dangerous than being a cheerleader. The World Arc circumnavigation route is roughly 25,000 nautical miles. Participants likely rack up far more sea miles because of side trips and tacking into headwinds. With an average pace of 4 miles an hour underway, the trip would take 6,250 hours. I used U.S. Coast Guard statistics to estimate the death rate per hour of sailing in 2011. That is about 0.3% for every 10,000 hours. Over the course of a 6,250 hour journey, it works out to a 0.2% chance of death while sailing. Cruisers also spend a lot of time in their small tenders going to and from the mothership. If they spend an hour a day in their dinghy for the 5.94 years of an average circumnavigation, this translates to a 0.1% chance they will die in their dinghy over the course of the long trip. The death rate in dinghies was about 0.5% per 10,000 hours in 2011, but over about six years, the cruiser is estimated to spend 2,167 hours in her dinghy. Over that period, certainly the risks such as heart disease and cancer loom larger for cruisers older than 50 than does death associated with boating accidents. If the cruiser's boat averages over four knots for a faster trip, then the calculated risk decreases because the total hours go down. If those cruisers stop driving and riding in their cars over those six years, they can reduce their chances of death in an automobile accident by 0.5% over that period. In 2009, the average American spent almost a thousand hours driving in or riding in automobiles. If we subtract out the risks of going back to one's land-based automobile-focused existence, then the typical six-year circumnavigation has a chance of death of about 0.25% or 1 in 400. Another way of looking at it is that circumnavigating is six times more dangerous than your regular commute of nearly a thousand hours in your car per year. Per hour of activity, sailing is about 3.5 times more dangerous than riding in the car. Riding in a dinghy is about six times more dangerous per hour than riding in a car. In all three cases, only after 10,000 hours of activity does the mortality risk surpass 0.5%. On a per hour basis, climbing on top of Everest is much more dangerous. I use the average times for climbs above base camp from an Everest climbing website. At a minimum, from the books and movies that I have read and seen about Everest, guided climbers try to climb to Camp 3 8,000 meters at least twice. The first time is to acclimatize to the altitude, and the second time is to climb the mountain.
I doubled the climb times to Camp 3 to allow for descents and added 16 hours at each camp above base camp for rest. From what I read, climbers only go to Camp 4 and the summit once a season. Thus, the average times for Camp 4 and above were recorded only once. That gives me 146 hours above base camp. Using the 1.1 mortality rate above base camp between 1953 and 2012, an hour above base camp on Everest is 264 times more dangerous than an hour of sailing. Why do so many more people succeed at climbing Mount Everest than sailing around the world? My guess is that climbing Mount Everest is a part-time pursuit. It only takes about two months in the Himalayas to acclimatize and find the appropriate weather window. Many amateur climbers that survive the mountain don't succeed on their first attempt and must come for two or more expeditions. Moreover, few climbers will attempt Everest and few guides will accept clients who have not summited some other large glaciated peaks, such as Denali, known as Mount McKinley, to 20,322 feet, or the safest 8,000-plus meter peak of Chou Oyu at 26,906 feet. Multiple, multi-week expeditions are often necessary to get up these training peaks, and the training peaks for Denali and Cho Oyu. Mount Rainier, 14,409 feet, and Kilimanjaro, 19,341 feet, are examples of the latter. These expeditions up training peaks are also dangerous, but I have not included the very large mortality risks of climbing these lesser peaks on the way to an Everest summit. Amateur climbers can piece together vacations and short leaves of absences from their jobs to build their experience on high mountains and eventually summit the biggest mountain if they don't die along the way. They typically have to shell out well over a hundred thousand. My guess is that two hundred thousand to three hundred thousand is a better estimate of the outlays on the way to the top of Everest. Moreover, they must build up a high level of cardiovascular fitness, which usually far exceeds what is necessary to complete a marathon, to trudge up fixed ropes with oxygen masks strapped to their faces. The high altitude porters can carry most loads, but can't carry climbers up to and down from the top of the world. In contrast, Sailing around the world is assumed to be a full-time pursuit. You have to quit your job and live on a boat. That is the conventional wisdom at least. You need to cut your ties to land, house, car, and take your kids out of school if they've not yet flown the coop. Everest summiters do none of this. They rarely climb the mountain with their significant other, who may or may not like mountain climbing as much as their spouse. In contrast, first-time circumnavigators, according to my analysis of the Latitude 38 list, are couples at 57%. If your boat is your year-round home, you'll want a bigger boat than if it is simply your vacation cottage. Thus, the idea that the circumnavigation is a year-round pursuit may have prompted sailors to buy bigger, more expensive boats than if they saw it as a part-of-the-year second home. 
I looked at the first-time circumnavigators from the Latitude 38 list to estimate the trends in boat size since 1950. My estimates say that the average circumnavigator's boat departing in 2015 will be 49 feet long. However, many people have completed the circle in much smaller, less expensive boats. The cost to outfit and maintain a 49-foot boat is likely to exceed the huge sums amateur climbers shell out to eventually be guided to the top of Everest. A successful circumnavigation takes six years on average. If the crew of those boats leave the workforce for all six years, lost wages for these people probably far exceed the actual cost of outfitting, maintaining, and buying the sailboat. It seems likely that the amateur Everest climbers only lose a year or less of work to pursue their climbing dreams. This in part explains why retirees are more common than younger cruisers. If the person is retired, there are no lost wages from sailing around the world for six years. I suspect another big reason for the low number of circumnavigations is the lack of focus. The myth is that on a circumnavigation, you will see the world. Unfortunately, there are far too many interesting stops accessible by water to see them all. If a cruiser stops everywhere, she will run out of time, money, health, or some combination of the three. Mountain climbers do not suffer from this lack of focus. Their goal is not to see every inch of the mountain. Instead, they aim for a line to the top and a line back down to base camp. Similarly, circumnavigation is a line around the world. It is not a zigzag stopping at every interesting port in the world's oceans. Chapter 5. Comfort in the Off-Season All land-based conveniences that the circumnavigator does without during the cruising season are much greater chores when the boat stops moving during typhoon season. Without new places to explore, the voyage stops being an adventure and the hardships of boat life start to grate on the full-time circumnavigator. In contrast, a part-time circumnavigator can limit her time to only when the adventure is ongoing and new ports are being discovered. When you are moving and exploring, the modern conveniences are not as important. In contrast, the discomforts of boat life have few redeeming qualities when the boat is idle during cyclone season. You can get your fix of modern conveniences by plane much easier than moving the boat back and forth from the less developed to the developed world. Upon arriving in New Zealand after months in the tropics, one circumnavigator wrote that he was starved for full-service grocery stores. Getting one's fix of modern life is just a plane flight away. Instead of sailing to New Zealand, he could have flown there, or to his home country, the United States. The smallest apartment is more comfortable than a 60-foot yacht parked in a marina, with its anchor down or swinging from a mooring. Regardless of the size of your boat, you will find more comfortable shore-based lodgings out of season that cost less than keeping your boat safe and climate controlled with all the multitude of its systems working. The first shock that dirt dwellers experience when they buy a boat is how often stuff breaks down. The more systems there are on a boat, the more systems that can break down. If you're handy, you can fix stuff yourself. 
avoiding the hassle of hiring and managing workers and paying for their huge bills. Alternatively, you can go back to land-based accommodation and experience the relatively breakdown-free existence for a few months while your boat has a dry storage berth in some exotic location. The trade wind circumnavigation traverses the tropics. Cyclone and hurricane seasons are in the summers. That means living on a boat out of cruising season but in the tropical storm season is probably really hot. You could keep the shore power and generators working overtime to run the air conditioner if you have such luxuries, but that is neither cheap nor trouble free. We were boiling in April in Key West after our cruise to the Bahamas. My wife and daughter were planning to fly out soon, so we could not just flee to cooler northern latitudes. Unfortunately, our generator had a bad fuel filter and some watery gas. Our cooling lines from the air conditioner also had to be unclogged from seaweed. I only diagnosed and solved these problems after a week of trial and error and parts shopping. We could not afford transient marina fees, so we swung on a mooring in a well-protected but largely windless bay. I got the AC working and even bought a spare Honda generator. After Sophie and Jana flew out, I headed north just after the first named storm formed a few hundred miles to the east of Key West. Unfortunately, full-time cruisers in the tropics cannot sail for higher latitudes once they have chosen their tropical storm season base. They are stuck until cruising season starts again. One full-time circumnavigator spoke of a mooring on a remote island that was near the equator and thus out of the cyclone belt, where he spent the South Pacific cyclone season. He spoke of boredom, petty rivalries, and insignificant slights among the cruising boaters and the island residents. That circumnavigator avoided the round-trip problem with his typhoon season island, but that did not make for a great six months. On a mooring or at an anchor, the full-time circumnavigator in the off-season will likely have to transport fuel and water by dinghy. This is hot, hard work. Further, a water maker may not save the full-time cruiser from schlepping water frequently. If she has a desalinator, it has a rigorous maintenance schedule. Further, it cannot be run if there's any oil, diesel, or gasoline floating around. The expensive reverse osmosis membrane will be destroyed if any petroleum products are in the water. If the cruiser needs a new membrane, she will have to go through an ordeal and expense of ordering parts in paradise. For all these reasons, running a water maker in a crowded mooring field or a dirty harbor is a bad idea. If you can't use a high-capacity water maker, luxurious showers are probably not in the cards. Even the best boat shower is one-tenth as good as the shore-based shower. Laundry is also hassle. Some sailors wash laundry out of a bucket of salt water and rinse with freshwater stores. A full-time circumnavigator might find an expensive marina with laundry. This is doubtful in many locations. She may also find a place with laundry machines but it will often be a long dinghy ride and hike to get to it. A rare boat has a big enough generator and water maker to run a washing machine. On top of that, 
all these interdependent systems are likely to break down. There is always the bucket method when either the water maker, the generator, or the washing machine breaks down. The most comfortable thing is to leave the boat for at least six months during typhoon and hurricane season. In this way, the part-time cruiser will benefit from climate control, easy transportation, and improved diet and hygiene if they leave the boat for at least six months. The part-time circumnavigator can visit doctors and dentists covered by standard domestic health insurance. If they want to, a part-time circumnavigator can also earn money in their home country. Chapter 6. Part-time cruising and money. Part-time cruising is very common even for people who have, quote, quit their jobs to live on a boat. The seasons often necessitate part-time cruising, even if money concerns do not. Martin Lane Smith's early part-time cruising from 2001 to 2005 did not seem to be driven by money. He and his partner were retired, but North Atlantic hurricane season encouraged the couple to move off their boat for about five months of the year while they explored the Bahamas and the Caribbean. He explains in his podcast, Initially, I looked at cruising as sort of an excursion in the same sense that I viewed myself as living in California and going on six-month cruises on Dos Gatos. And then I would be back in California for the summer, five months or so, and then the month in Florida to get the boat ready, and then go off for another cruise for six months. And I tended to think of it that way. For a couple of years, I kept an apartment, Magic Flute, a North Sea 27 sailboat, and two vehicles in California. I gradually shed those over the years because I really did not get enough time to mess with them. Now I still have one vehicle there, the Jeep Wrangler. But I have everything else in a storage unit. I have no other ties to the area. In particular, when we moved to Trinidad for hurricane season, the center of gravity shifted and I tended to think of myself as living on the boat year-round and then taking two-month excursions back to California to take care of business. So I saw myself as boat-centric, whereas prior to that, I saw myself as living in California. Cruising part-time can ease the transition from one's ties to one's home, cars, and other belongings. Money also pushes many younger cruisers to cruise part-time, As I argued earlier, being stuck in port is not very rewarding. Earning money, keeping one's job market skills fresh, and refilling the cruising kitty, the savings to fund several months more travels, drives many younger cruisers to leave the boat or suspend the cruise. Lynn and Larry Party essentially suspended their cruising on their 24-foot sailboat Seraphin so Larry could work at a boatyard in Virginia or as a sailmaker's assistant in England. Prior to coming to Virginia, they spent a lot of time working in Miami to earn money. Work visas are often hard to come by, thus working cruisers will often have to return to their home to get a job. Since it is much easier to fly back than move the boat to their home country, cruisers today can leave their boats to continue working. Quitting one's job to live on a boat may lead to a big pay cut when returning to the workforce on a per-hour basis. Outside of the 
most highly in-demand careers and professions, many modern workers do not have a well-defined set of skills. Thus, job searches may be prolonged. Cruisers may have to accept large pay cuts. Waiting tables in the off-season may not be appealing to many potential full-time cruisers who contemplate quitting their current job to go cruising. A better option is to arrange for a few months of unpaid leave. There are many jobs in which being there every day is not essential. Employers often want to retain a valuable employee by negotiating a few months of unpaid leave. For example, employers manage maternity leaves all the time. They can manage a three-month unpaid sabbatical. Educators and students have two to three-month breaks. Those breaks are perfect for part-time cruises. This is especially true if those extended cruises don't involve round trips. Business owners may find it hard to sell their businesses, but they may be able to step away from being on site for a few months at a time. Professionals may be able to limit their availability to just six to ten months of the year. A dentist can decide to only take appointments for six months of the year especially if he is in a practice with several other dentists. A medical doctor could seek out locum tenens for six months of the year, filling in for other absent doctors. Consultants or computer scientists could take assignments for only part of the year. Franz Amundsen worked as a financial advisor for many years. On his podcast entitled Sailing in the Mediterranean, He explains that he typically took two months off from his work in Salt Lake City, Utah to cruise on his 28-foot sailboat in the Mediterranean in the summer months, the high season in the Med. Mr. Amason probably could have retired and lived on his boat full-time if he wanted to. Since he did not, we might conclude that he enjoys his part-time cruising more. Cruising part-time allowed him to go back to his practice and home in Utah. Chapter 7. Exit Plan A couple who quits their jobs and sells their home and most of their worldly possessions has to start over when they return home. Even if they decide the cruise is not for them after a few months or a year. This is very common according to Get Her On Board author Nick O'Kelly. I crewed on a delivery trip where the beautiful, new, fully loaded sailboat was supposed to be cruising in the Bahamas and Eastern Caribbean that season. Instead, after a few weeks in the boat, the couple decided cruising over the horizon was not for them. They flew back home to New Jersey and hired a skipper to sail their boat back from South Florida. Thus, they shelled out thousands of dollars to have somebody else sail their brand new world cruising boat, which they may now never take outside of the U.S. At least they had a home to get back to. The stories are legion of one member of the couple, usually the female, in the partnership, calling a very premature end to a long-dreamed-of cruise. With two to six-month leaves of absence from your job, it's no big deal to decide that circumnavigating is not for you. Just go back to your job and home and hire a skipper to sail your boat to a good place to sell it. Sure, you lost some wages and you may lose some money on the boat, but you can easily slide back into your old life. 
That's not necessarily the case if you sold your house and quit your jobs or sold your business. You may or may not get your old job back at the same salary or at all. Starting a new business is never easy. In Breaking Seas, Glenn D'Amato realizes that he does not like cruising life after sailing his sailboat from San Francisco to Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. He was in a deep depression in a foreign port until he was able to win his old job back. Not all potential full-time circumnavigators will find such a happy ending, and some may never regain their earnings and status of their old employment. Dissatisfaction with the cruise is not the only reason why would-be circumnavigations are aborted. Life events that often postpone leaving the dock can delay or end a cruise. Health issues and family emergencies can come at any time. If the cruiser still has her old life to come back to, these problems may be more manageable. Most Americans have health care tied to their employers. If they permanently leave their jobs, they may be unable to pay for any serious health problems. Illness is one of the biggest causes of bankruptcy in the United States. In the book, Eurisco Sales West, A Year in Panama, Connie McBride tells of the difficulty of getting back surgery for her husband Dave after he ruptured a disc on the cruise, hauling heavy jerry cans. With no jobs to come back to and a non-working engine on their 34-foot sailboat, they had to struggle to get Dave McBride the medical care that he needed. Chapter 8 Kids in School For parents with children, part-time cruising may also make sense. Certainly many families have successfully homeschooled their children while cruising full-time. Nevertheless, public or even private schools are great service to parents. Educating a child or children of several different ages can easily become a full-time job. Many parents will not want to become both educators and cruisers. The educational duties may fall to one parent, marring her cruise since she has to play the teacher while her husband plays sailor. If the family only cruises during the summer months, they can take advantage of services of formal schooling. Summer cruising allows both parents to participate in the fun of sailing and cruising more equally. Observing my own daughter, I have found that the peer pressure of large group lessons can be much more effective in keeping her focused on the new material than one-on-one instruction. It is often hard to find other boats with similarly aged children. On our Bahamas cruise, we only found one place where Sophie could find other playmates. That was in the large cruising destination of Georgetown Exuma, where several hundred boats gathered during the winter and spring. Less popular cruising destinations and marinas often lacked one other boat with children. Wendy Hinman, in her book Tightwads on the Loose, wrote that her husband rarely saw any children during his family's circumnavigation. He did okay in school. He went to MIT as an undergrad. Nevertheless, most parents would prefer that their kids have frequent interactions with similarly aged children. Doña Cornell's family circumnavigated the globe 
while she was 7 to 13. She told her story in the book Child of the Sea. Her father was Jimmy Cornell, mentioned earlier. She and her brother had rocky starts to school when her family's seven-year circumnavigation ended. Even experienced homeschooling parents will occasionally prefer to have their children attend school. Dave and Jaja Martin wrote Into the Light, a family's epic journey about their trip to Spitsbergen in the Arctic Circle in a 33-foot sailboat with their three children. The Martins completed a seven-year trade wind circumnavigation in a 25-foot boat in 1995 before embarking on the cruise to the Arctic in the 33-foot sailboat driver. Despite homeschooling their children for many years, they enrolled some of their children in school in Norway for part of the 11,000-mile cruise. Homeschooling is great, but it's not for everyone. On our cruise, I was always busy fixing stuff that broke, route planning, or hauling stuff in the dinghy. That left little time for me to give eight hours of preschooling curriculum to Sophie. Jana went to eight years of college and completed six years of residency and fellowship to practice medicine and pediatric endocrinology. She is not trained in early childhood education, elementary education, history, music, math, or science for elementary, middle, or secondary school. If she is going to put in a full day of work, she would rather work in her field of training than homeschool. I feel the same way. I bet a lot of potential cruisers make the same decision and do not cruise while their kids are in school. Many would-be cruisers wait until their kids graduate from high school. The option that I advocate involves cruising during the summer breaks. My parents teach kindergarten and high school English. There are lots of trained, certified teachers on land working for a pittance compared to the similarly educated dirt dwellers. If you homeschool on your boat, you give up that free public education or low-cost private school for your kids. If someone makes $100,000 a year in her job and gives it up to homeschool, replacing free or, say, $10,000 per year, private education, that's a bad financial decision. The only reason to make that financial sacrifice would be because you love homeschooling. Cruising with kids is rare. In the 2015 Georgetown Cruisers Regatta, only about 6% of boats were kids' boats. In the West Coast Circumnavigators list, only 8% of the boats were kids' boats, according to my estimates. I define a kid boat as a boat with three or more people sharing the same last name. I suspect that most people that love sailing and cruising don't necessarily love homeschooling. For that reason, many people balk from cruising while the kids are still in school. This may be one reason why most full-time cruisers postpone full-time cruising until after the kids are out of the house. Wanting to be a sailor is not synonymous with wanting to be your kid's teacher. For now, we would rather our daughter Sophie has access to children her age during the school year and outsource the educational services to highly trained teachers. Chapter 9, Breakdowns and Parts, 
A smart world cruiser has lots of spares. Nevertheless, we rarely think of everything. Besides, if you have a boat big enough to store all your spares, it would need to be twice as big as the boat you want to sail in. In short, you will have breakdowns. You will run out of consumables like filters before you finish your around-the-world cruise. That means you will have to deal with international shipping and waiting in port for parts. Both things are likely to be worse than a colonoscopy. I know you think FedEx can ship overnight anywhere in the world. It's not true. Even if you don't mind paying $250 for shipping and $150 for customs duties on a $100 pump, it is impossible to ship it to most places where your boat will be. That means you have to spend weeks of your time in paradise in expensive, dirty outposts such as Suva, Nassau, or Papeete, bleeding cash and time. You will want to hike the waterfalls, lie on the pristine beaches, and snorkel the unspoiled reefs. Who wants to frequent the Tahiti McDonald's? The international logistics companies are illogical. I learned this lesson the hard way. They are only good at collecting your money. They are awful at shipping stuff when you leave the land of five-digit zip codes and freeways in your wake. I was 50 miles from Miami while on the island of North Bimini in the Bahamas, but there was only one international shipping company that shipped there. It lost the package sent to me and the package that I sent. Their customer service line in the Bahamas never picked up the phone and there was only an 800 number good for the U.S. on the web. They used outsized contractors who don't give tracking updates. Two-day shipping turned into a week. I did get my package thanks to the CEO of DHL Americas. If you are having trouble calling or corresponding with the top executives at FedEx, DHL, or UPS, you are not alone. Don't think they can bail you out in the islands. If the Bahamas is too remote, think of what Vanuatu will be like. Even if shipping companies do their jobs, the packages can be held up by customs in unknown locations for unknown reasons. Sorting this out will not only be expensive, but it will be a mystery worthy of a novel. It will be a mystery you don't want to act out. What is the only reliable way of bringing back hard-to-get consumables or parts? Bring them in your luggage. That's right. You can trust the airlines more than FedEx. The odds that your luggage is a day late is less than 5%. The odds that your international package will be late or lost in the islands is 80%. You say, plane tickets are expensive. Bingo. You're correct. Nevertheless, if you are flying anyways, then your plane flight for parts is free. On average, a part-time cruiser will be going back to her job, business, or home in the developed world in three months or less. Thus, resupply can be done via luggage. Sure, you may be stopped by customs and have to pay a fee. My wife did when she brought me a windlass and a pump in her luggage on the flight to Nassau. That was infinitely better than the package being held by customs. My wife was delayed 20 minutes instead of our cruise being delayed weeks, waiting for parts to arrive. If part of your crew is joining you, 
Midway through the season's travel, that is all the better. You can get needed parts or supplies that you forgot in that new crew member's luggage. This technique is not new and was mentioned in Erskine Childers' sailing novel, The Riddle of the Sands. When your season's cruise is shorter, part-time versus full-time, then getting parts by plane flight is more feasible because you are more often flying back and forth to the boat. Chapter 10. Conclusion There are widespread misconceptions by dreamy sailors about how one must go about circumnavigation. Even full-time circumnavigations are part-time cruises. You don't need to sell every worldly possession that does not fit in your boat and quit your job or business. All you need to start a circumnavigation by sailboat is to carve out a few months each year to keep the boat moving forward. The key is moving forward. You don't graduate from college by taking every course in the catalog. You take the courses required for your degree. Likewise, a circumnavigation does not visit every port in the globe. It is moving in a line around the world until you cross your outbound track. If you avoid the cruising season circle by hauling out your boat or tying it up at a safe marina, you can complete the circumnavigation challenge with far fewer sea miles under your keel. The more round trips you avoid, the more likely it is that your crew and your bank account will not tire of the quest. Part-time circumnavigators do not need to upend their careers or businesses which were built over several years. A couple does not have to pull their kids out of school or wait until they are grown. They will spend less time in dirty foreign ports waiting for parts than full-time cruisers. Many people's dreams of a circumnavigation have been crushed by the full-time circumnavigation fallacy. They had to wait until they retired. They had to wait until the kids were grown. They had to wait until they had enough money to fund many years of not working. I hope many readers throw off these misconceptions and start the cruise of their dreams. At the time of writing, I don't know if my slow boat will ever make it around the world. I don't know if it will ever make it to Panama. Nevertheless, I would rather have the circumnavigation in progress or ahead of me than in the rearview mirror. I would rather be preparing for a leg of the journey in a few months than saying, someday I'll do it when the time is right. The right time never comes. Get the boat, sail it, prepare, learn to maintain it, try some shorter cruises, get some offshore experience, choose a good weather window, and then just go. I hope that you complete your part-time circumnavigation, even if I never do. If you want to know more about future books and my family's travels, get free chapters or books, boat repair tips, and news of discounts, subscribe to my free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com. If you got to the end of this book, do a good deed and help your fellow sailors and write a review on Amazon. I hope you have fair winds and following seas. About me. My first book, Slow Boat to the Bahamas, was a number one bestseller in Bahamas Travel Guides and Kindle Sailing Narratives on Amazon. 
It's a funny look at getting the sailing bug and sailing to the Bahamas from New Orleans in 2015. I've been published in Good Old Boat, Cruising Outposts, and Southwinds magazines. I earned a doctorate in financial economics from Oxford University in England. On the dirt, I'm an associate professor of finance at the University of Louisiana, and I'm married with one child, Sophie. My family sails a 31-foot island packet, SV Contango, which is better known as the slow boat. I jog because I sometimes like to travel faster than five knots. To join the adventure, move towards the cruise of your dreams, and get news of free books, subscribe to my free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com. So there you have it. Cast off those dock lines, sail around the world. You can do it. You don't have to quit your job. We've got a lot of content on the Slowboat Sailing channel. Um, so I mentioned the COVID road trip. I think we're going to have that as a podcast. We'll probably also have that as a video episode uh, on the Slowboat Sailing channel. We put up the the climbs that I did for the summer because I wasn't allowed to go back to the boat this summer uh, and just was just recently allowed to go back to the boat for the first time this December. And uh, so you can see those. So I don't think we're going to do, I don't think I'm going to do a, a, an ebook or a paperback book uh, about this last summer, but you can see kind of the significant uh, 14er climbs that we, that I did and the RVing that I did this summer on that, on the slow boat sailing channel. You know, I've not been as active on the slow boat sailing channel over the last couple of years because um, my personal channel Linus Wilson channel has really taken off and um, the, which mostly covers video games now. And so those, <laughs> That, that gets more views. So uh, I still plan to put up some content there, and I'm still toying with uh, doing the, you know, seasons three and four, which I don't think I've put up on that channel at all. Uh, so I kind of left you guys in Tahiti. And uh, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that, you know, we sailed to New Caledonia uh, and Tonga and Fiji after that. So, the you know, you want to find out more stuff about what's going on with us, you go to uh, the Slow Boat Sailing channel on YouTube, slowboatsailing.com, sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we give away free stuff there. If you want to support the podcast, sign up on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. I'm Linus Wilson. Have some fun on the water. Thanks for listening.